You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Lecture 6 of the Lecture Cycle by Rudolf Steiner, entitled According to Matthew, The Gospel of Christ's Humanity. It is obvious to anyone who considers the ancestral line of Luke's Jesus that his intention coincides with what I said yesterday. Just as a divine nexus of forces pervaded the physical and etheric bodies of the Solomonic Jesus, a divine being also pervaded the astral body and eye of the one we know as Luke's Nathanic Jesus. By following the ancestry of Jesus back to Adam and back to God, Luke makes it clear that this divine being was able to incarnate because of its direct descent from a point just before the first physical human incarnation on earth. In other words, to discover the principle that lived in the astral body and eye of the Nathanic Jesus, we must go back to a state before physical incarnation. This was the period when humankind had not yet emerged from divine spiritual existence, but still rested in its womb. Spiritual science refers to this stage as ancient Lemuria, when human nature was still godlike and unaffected by the Luciferic forces. And in fact, Luke follows the ancestry of Jesus back to this stage. Yesterday, we described mystery knowledge that encompassed the great mysteries of cosmic space. This type of initiation was intended to help individuals transcend human nature as influenced by the earthly element. In other words, it taught people to perceive the world without the instruments acquired under the influence of Lucifer. The first great question for the students of these mysteries was what does the cosmos look like to clairvoyant perception that is no longer influenced by the physical and etheric bodies or by everything we encounter in earthly life? This level of clairvoyance was natural during Lemurian times, before the first divine human spirit descended into what the Bible calls the, quote, earthly Adam, unquote. Adam means earthly human or human nature that is no longer divine spirit but clothed in earthly elements. The exalted initiation of the great mystery centers was the only earthly means of regaining that level of clairvoyance. Having said that Luke let me say that again, having said that, Luke traces Jesus' ancestry back to Adam and to God, we may find it strange that he lists only seventy seven generations, and indeed why does Matthew list only forty two generations from Abraham to the Christ? Forty-two generations are not enough to cover such a period of time if we assume the normal number of years per generation. But we must also entertain the notion that from the time of the patriarchs to the reigns of Solomon and David, a generation was no longer was long. Excuse me, a generation was longer than it became later. To account for known historical dates. The three generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for example, must have spanned a total of approximately 215 years, which is longer than the current average for three generations. And when we consider the generations from Adam to Abraham, it is even more evident that a generation then was was longer than it is today.
Esoteric research confirms this conclusion. In the generations after Abraham, the patriarchs were quite old when their sons were born. Today we usually calculate 33 years per generation, but Matthew quite rightly counted 75 years or more per generation at the time of the patriarchs. It must be emphasized, however, that the generations in Matthew refer to individuals, whereas the names listed by Luke as the generations prior to Abraham do not. In this context we must recall a fact that seems inconceivable to any modern materialistic conception of the human being. For ordinary people what we call memory, that is our coherent consciousness and recollection of a constant inner element in our being, reaches back only to early childhood. If we trace our lives backward we reach a time when memory cuts off. A few will remember more of their childhood than others, but memory today is definitely restricted to the life of one person, or even a shorter time, since it does not go all the way back to birth. In contrast, consider human soul capacities and the nature of consciousness in ancient times, when clairvoyance was the normal state of human consciousness. This is not surprising, as spiritual research confirms that even in more recent times the nature of memory was very different from what it is now. Before the biblical time of Abraham, therefore, the entire makeup of the human soul was different. Memory in particular was somewhat different. Earlier still, during Atlantean times, it was totally different. Unlike modern memory, which encompasses only the personal experiences of an individual life, memory <clears throat> at that time extended beyond birth. It encompassed the experiences of one's ancestors and flowed in a bloodline through a series of generations. Only later did it become limited to a certain span of time and ultimately to an individual life. How people were given names in ancient times is itself a subject of study. To put it very briefly, the meaning of a name was very different from an individual name today. Exoteric philology is really very superficial on this subject. In earlier times, names were used very differently since they did not refer superficially to objects or beings as they do today. In ancient times, a name was an integral part of a being or object, expressing its inner character through sound. A name was intended to echo the being as such. We can no longer imagine such conditions today. If we could, it would be impossible to write books such as Fritz Maudner's Critique of Language, which gives a wonderful account of recent research and scholarly criticism on language, but fails to mention the essential aspect of ancient language. In ancient times a name referred not to any individual human being, but to everything encompassed by an individual's memory. In other words, a name belonged in use, excuse me, in other words, a name remained in use for as long as memory persisted. Noah, for example, is not the name of an individual, but the total of an individual's memory reaching back through a series of generations and including the life of his father, grandfather, and so on. A single name was used for a series of individuals linked by a common thread of memory. Names such as Adam, Seth, and Enoch encompassed as many generations as an individual could remember. A change of name meant the beginning of a new thread of memory. It meant that, no, that one no longer recalled the lives of one's ancestors. A new thread did not end with the death of, say, the first Enoch, but was carried from father to son through the generations until a new thread of memory began. Luke uses names in this way to show 
that the divine spirit that descended into the eye and astral body of the Nathanic Jesus must be traced back to the first human incarnation on earth. The first names listed in Luke refer to individuals, but the names of the generations before Abraham list spans of multiple lifetimes when several personalities were held together as a single eye through the power of memory, so to speak. I hope this makes it easier for you to see that the 77 names listed in Luke span very long periods, reaching back to the time when the first divine spiritual human entity incarnated in a physical body. There is another aspect of Matthew's Gospel that we must understand. Those who go through 77 steps of development in the great mystery centers purify their souls of everything humankind has absorbed during existence on earth. The state of consciousness they achieve is possible only in a body-free state, in the astral body and I. In this state, initiates expand into the origins of earth itself and the entire solar system. They reach back to the divine spiritual being that descended into the astral body in the eye of the Nathanic Jesus, who represents what human beings acquire from heavenly rather than earthly conditions. Luke describes the spiritual being that imbued and impregnated the astral body and eye of the Nathanic Jesus, but Matthew describes the divine being that created Abraham's internal organ of Yahweh consciousness and established a hereditary line in the physical and etheric bodies of forty-two generations of Hebrews. <clears throat> Yesterday I mentioned that the Therapeutae and Essenes, whose great teacher was Jeshu ben Pandira, cultivated these teachings, especially Matthew's teachings on the origin of the blood of Jesus of Nazareth. Jeshu ben Pandira's task was to prepare for the coming of Christ Jesus. At least a few people had to learn in advance, through experience in the mysteries, that forty-two generations of development of the Hebrews would enable Zarathustra to reincarnate in one of Abraham's descendants, a member of the Solomonic branch of the house of David. The Essene schools presented these teachings, and some of their pupils went through the forty-two steps that led to clairvoyant perception of the being then descending through forty-two stages. The Essenes, who announced his coming to the world, had to ensure that at least a few people would understand the nature of the coming Christ. We mentioned the unique journey of the individuality who incarnated in the bloodline described by Matthew. As a consequence of his teachings in his original incarnation, Zarathustra was uniquely suited to this particular incarnation. He introduced the culture of Egypt by contributing his astral body to Hermes Trismegistus. He also sacrificed his etheric body from that same incarnation, and it was preserved for Moses, who established yet another civilization. Meanwhile, Zarathustra continued to incarnate in other astral and etheric bodies. We are now particularly interested in his incarnation in ancient Chaldea as, Nazar as Zarathas or Nazarathos during the 6th century B.C. Zarathustra's disciples during that incarnation included not only Chaldean sages and magi, but also the wisest Hebrew students of the mysteries, who came into contact with him during their Babylonian captivity. For the next six hundred years the Chaldean mystery schools were filled with traditions, ceremonies and rites that originated with Zarathustra in his incarnation as Zarathas. Generations of students of the mysteries throughout Chaldea, Babylonia, Assyria, 
and other parts of Asia revered Zarathustra as their great teacher and master. They waited for his next incarnation, knowing he would reappear after six hundred years. They were aware of the mystery of his reappearance, which in a sense shone toward them from the future. Once the bloodline had been prepared for Zarathustra's new incarnation, three envoys, the three wise men from the east, began their journey. They knew that the revered name of Zarathustra served as the star that would guide them to the place of his reincarnation. The great teacher's being itself was the star that led the three magi to the birthplace of Matthew's Jesus. Even exoteric philology confirms that in ancient times the word star was a name for human individuals. Spiritual research, which is more precise on this point than other sources, tells us that the three magi followed Zoroaster, the golden star. In the place of his to the place of his reincarnation. The fact that the word star was used to designate exalted human individualities, however, also suggests that the Magi's guiding star was in fact Zarathustra himself. The Chaldean mystery centers were aware of the mystery of Zarathustra's future incarnation, while the Essene initiates who had ascended through forty-two stages taught the mystery of the Hebrew bloodline which would provide a suitable physical vehicle for Zarathustra when the time came. Basically, therefore, there, are, there were two groups who knew certain aspects of the mystery of Matthew's Jesus. The Chaldean initiates knew about it from the perspective of Zarathustra and pointed to the one who would incarnate in the Jewish bloodline. The Essenes knew about it externally from the perspective of the physical bloodline. For a century and more, Essene schools foretold the coming of Matthew's Jesus, one who would meet all the conditions we previously described, as well as others we will describe now. After long periods of soul exercises and purification, Essene candidates for initiation were guided upward through forty-two stages as they learned to perceive the mysteries of the physical and etheric bodies. Meanwhile, the being who was to be born into the Hebrew bloodline was descending from above, that being, according to the Essenes, would be born with faculties that Essene students could achieve only after long and difficult trials as they passed through the forty-two stages of initiation. Essentially, the soul exercises and purifications practiced by the Essenes were a continuation of a type of esoteric training that had existed within Judaism since ancient times. Even before the emergence of the Therapeutae and the Essenes, those in the so-called Nazarene movement developed the body and soul through very specific methods. <coughs> a specific diet, complete avoidance of meat and alcohol, was especially important to the Nazarene method. Numbers 6, 1-21 This is still useful today for those who would like to accelerate their soul development, since eating meat can indeed retard spiritual development. It is not my intention to propagandize in the favor of vegetarianism, but avoiding meat really does make inner development easier. It allows the human soul to develop greater resistance and strength for overcoming obstacles originating in the physical and etheric bodies. By avoiding meat, our efforts become more productive, though of course this is not enough by itself. Effort is the most important factor for strengthening the soul. Without soul effort, abstaining from meat alters the physical body without serving any real purpose. <clears throat> the Essenes who preserved Nazarene traditions strictly avoided meat, but their rules were even more stringent and included other proscriptions 
described yesterday and the day before. These measures helped the Essenes develop their memory rather quickly. As a result, they were able to look back through forty-two generations into the mysteries of the Akashic record. They became like buds on a tree or plant that persist through many generations. They were not severed from the tree of humanity, but sensed their connection to it. They were somewhat different from those who had severed their connection with their family tree and whose memory was restricted to a single life. These members of the Essene communities who cultivated the faculty of extended memory were known as Netzer, N-E-Z-E-R. This term meant living twig, as opposed to one cut from the tree. They could sense the sequence of generations within themselves. Among the Nezer was one especially faithful student of the great teacher, Jeshuben Pandira. The life of Jeshuben Pandira is well known to esotericists. He had five disciples, each of whom selected and cultivated a branch of his great and comprehensive teachings. The five disciples were Matai, Nakai, Nezer, because he belonged to the group of the Nezer, Boni, and Thona. Spiritual scientific research tells us that after Jeshu ben Pandira's death, his disciple Mathai continued to develop his teachings on the preparation of the bloodline for the appearance of Matthew's Jesus. His other great disciple, Nezer, furthered his teachings on soul development, which related to both the old and the new Nazarene schools, and he was chosen to establish a small Essene colony. In Palestine there were any number of these colonies, each of which fostered a particular branch of Essene knowledge. The Nazarene knowledge that Nezer was to cultivate found a home within the strictly guarded life of a colony that was then only a small town. The Bible calls it Nazareth. Its inhabitants lived in strict secrecy and cultivated the traditions of the ancient Nazarene school. For this reason, Nazareth was an obvious place for Matthew's Jesus to grow up. And in fact, he was brought there after his family returned from their flight into Egypt, which we will discuss later. Matthew tells us that Jesus was brought to Nazareth, quote, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene, unquote, Matthew 2.23. This verse has been translated in many different ways because the translators did not understand its true meaning. In reality, it means that Jesus would grow up in an Essene community. Now, before we discuss the relationship between Matthew's Jesus and Luke's, let's look at a few aspects of Matthew's Gospel in general. Its contents can be traced back to the mysteries taught by Jeshu ben Pandira in the Essene schools and further cultivated by his disciple Mathai. The very first mysteries of Matthew point to Mathai. Matthew describes everything that went into preparing the physical and etheric bodies of his Jesus, though, of course, the astral body is also influenced in the course of forty-two generations. We said that the first fourteen generations affected the physical body, the second fourteen the etheric body, and the third, after the Babylonian captivity, the astral body. Nevertheless, the being of Zarathustra, for whom this vehicle was prepared, could use only the physical and etheric bodies. As you know, I have always said that in terms of individual development, the physical body depends primarily between birth and the seventh year, excuse me, develops primarily between the birth and the seventh year of life. The etheric body develops during the seven years between the cutting of the adult teeth and puberty, 
and the astral body develops even later. Development of the physical and etheric bodies was to culminate in the bodies prepared by the generations beginning with Abraham. Zarathustra would occupy these bodies in his new incarnation, but once he had developed the etheric body and was ready to move on to develop the astral body, which had been prepared... What? Let me read that again. Zarathustra would occupy these bodies in his new incarnation, but once he had developed the etheric body and was ready to move on to develop the astral body, what had been prepared for him was no longer adequate. We cannot comprehend the deep mystery of the Christ Jesus without understanding the wonderful event that occurred next. The being of Zarathustra developed until the age of twelve within the physical and etheric bodies of Matthew's Jesus. Puberty usually begins around the age of thirteen in our part of the world, but for this particular individuality and because of the local climate it began earlier. By the time he was twelve years old, Zarathustra had achieved everything that was possible within the appropriately prepared physical and etheric bodies of the Solomonic bloodline. At this point the being of Zarathustra left the physical and etheric bodies described by Matthew and entered the Jesus described by Luke. My lectures on Luke explain the real meaning of his account of the twelve-year-old Jesus in the temple, Luke 2, 42-50. When Jesus suddenly changed so that his parents could not understand him, it was because the being of Zarathustra had just entered his body. Until that time that being had developed within the physical and etheric bodies of the Solomonic Jesus. Such events do occur, though they may sound far-fetched in today's superficial and materialistic way of seeing the world. It is indeed possible for an individual to move from one body to another, which is what the being of Zarathustra did when he abandoned his original body to move into Luke's Jesus with its specially prepared astral body and eye vehicle. After the age of twelve, Zarathustra continued his development in the Nathanic Jesus. Luke describes that remarkable moment when the twelve-year-old Jesus sat in the temple among the scholars making statements that sounded completely unfamiliar to those who knew him. Zarathustra's individuality entered the Nathanic Jesus at that time. It was not until the boy was twelve that Zarathustra began to speak through him, and this event changed him so much that even his parents did not recognize him as he sat among the scholars. In effect, we are confronted with two sets of parents. Both couples were named Joseph and Mary, common names at that time. We also confront the fact of two boys named Jesus. Matthew describes the line of descent leading to the Jesus of the Solomonic branch of the house of David. The other boy, the Jesus of the Nathanic branch, and the son of a different couple, is the child described by Luke. They grew up and developed in parallel until the age of twelve. You can find this in the Gospels, correctly understood. Everything the Gospels say about these two children is true. <coughs> As, we, as he grew up, the Nathanic Jesus developed tremendous emotional warmth. He had little talent for ordinary knowledge and wisdom, but his warmth of heart was boundless because his etheric body contained forces from a time when human beings existed in a godlike state before beginning their earthly incarnations. This godlike existence survived in the boy's boundless capacity for love. One particular incident alerted those who were aware of such phenomena to this boy's great inner powers. Most people learn to speak only through extended contact with the outer world, but Luke's Jesus spoke intelligibly immediately after birth, 
He was supremely gifted with inner warmth, but he had no talent for anything human beings acquire by their own efforts through earthly incarnations. No wonder his parents were surprised when this familiar boy was suddenly filled with wisdom usually acquired through the brain-bound intellect. This sudden and powerful transformation was possible because the being of Zarathustra left the Solomonic Jesus and entered into the Nathanic Jesus. This being was speaking through the boy when his parents found him in the temple. Of course, Zarathustra had fully developed all the capacities that can possibly be acquired through the physical and etheric bodies. He had sought out the bloodline of the Solomonic branch and the highly developed forces of the body it prepared. He took what he could use from this body and combined it with the inner warmth of Luke's Jesus, a holdover from a time when human beings had not yet incarnated on earth. These two aspects were united, and we now confront a single being. To make this perfectly clear, Luke tells us that the Jesus of his gospel was changed outwardly, and that his parents were not the only ones who discovered unexpected qualities in their son. Hence Luke's account of the incident in the temple ends with these words, And he went with them to Nazareth, and Jesus increased in outer physical comeliness, in noble habits, and in wisdom. These three attributes are emphasized because they were the ones he could acquire once Zarathustra occupied his body. Let me specifically say that in the ordinary Bible these words are usually translated as and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2.52 What this means, however, is that the being now living in the Nathanic Jesus was able to manifest in an outer way as well as through inner warmth of heart. This being had developed within a perfected physical body and was therefore able to expand his manifestation to include outer physical comeliness, nor had habits which are acquired and developed in the etheric body been evident in the same way in the Nathanic Jesus. He possessed a tremendous potential for love which became the basis for further development. This potential, however, had appeared all at once and could not work its way into his habits. But now a different being lived in him, one gifted with the forces of perfectly matured physical and etheric bodies. As a result, outer habits emerged, filling his etheric body. This is the second area of increase for the boy Jesus. The third, the increase in wisdom, is somewhat more self-evident. But this too occurred because his body was now occupied by the being of Zarathustra. When we discussed Luke's Gospel, I said that someone who is abandoned by the indwelling individuality and left with only the physical, etheric, and astral bodies might easily survive for quite some time. What remained of Matthew's Solomonic Jesus, however, quickly faded and died shortly after his twelfth birthday. Initially there were two Jesus' children, and the two became one. In a later lecture, we will hear in greater detail about the fusion of these two boys. For the moment, however, I will say only one more thing. Certain statements contained in ancient documents sound very strange, and they can be understood only when we know the relevant facts. A particular passage in the so-called Egyptian Gospel was already seen as highly heretical in the first centuries after Christ because Christian groups either did not want to hear the truth or did not want the truth to come out. A fragment of this apocryphal gospel says that, quote, Salvation will appear in the world when the two become one and the outer becomes as the inner, unquote. This sentence, based on esoteric facts, 
exactly expresses the situation I have just described. Salvation depends on the two becoming one, and when the being of Zarathustra in the twelfth year of his incarnation moved into the Nathanic Jesus, the two did indeed become one, and the, inter- and the inner became outer. The sole power of Luke's Jesus was evident as great inner warmth. This capacity began to manifest outwardly when Zarathustra, who had developed in conjunction with the physical and etheric bodies of the Solomonic Jesus, permeated it with forces that had developed within the lower members of the other Jesus. Powerful forces pervaded the physical and etheric bodies of the Nathanic Jesus from within, transforming his outer aspect into an expression of the aspect that had remained within until Luke's Jesus was occupied by the being of Zarathustra. In this sense the two became one, and the outer as the inner. We have traced the life of Zarathustra from his birth as Matthew's infant Jesus to his twelfth year of incarnation. He then abandoned his original body and adopted the bodily nature of the Nathanic Jesus, which he continued to transform until he was able to sacrifice his three bodies to receive the being we call the Christ. End of Lecture 6, given in Bern, September 6, 1910.